Maya Gavin Hood. Thanks so much for joining us. Tune into KBU Wednesday, July 24th from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. for the 21st annual Homelessness Marathon. Broadcasting from a different city each year and airing on non-commercial radio stations coast to coast, this annual marathon features live reports, interviews with advocates and experts, and calls from listeners all over the country. This year's programming includes the voices of youth, students, and LGBTQ people, panels on fighting evictions, transitioning people back into housing, and ending homelessness now. That's the Homelessness Marathon, Wednesday, July 24th, from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m., here on your community radio station, KBOO Portland. KBOO Community Radio is a proud co-sponsor of the Rally Against War in Iran and Venezuela on Sunday, July 28th from 1 to 4 p.m. at the Salmon Street Fountain Plaza in Waterfront Park in Portland. This March and rally will primarily focus on the possibility of U.S. military intervention in Iran and Venezuela, but also calling attention to the use of sanctions as economic war. Again, that's the rally against war in Iran and Venezuela, and sanctions kill people too. On Sunday, July 28th from 1 to 4 p.m. at the Salmon Street Fountain Plaza in Waterfront Park, downtown Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm at the right side of the homepage under Community Events. This is KBOO Portland. Stay tuned now for Sojourner Truth Radio. Welcome to Sojourner True. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today, Nelson Mandela Day is being marked in South Africa and around the world. 101 years ago, today, July 18th, Nelson Mandela was born. He died on December 5th, 2013. He became the first black president of South Africa after being freed from prison, where he spent 27 years for his activities struggling against apartheid as a member of the ANC and also the South African Communist Party. Nelson Mandela led the national and worldwide movement that brought an end of apartheid as official government policy in South Africa. Let us go to a clip of Nelson Mandela and his colleagues as he prepares to go to trial. He said that uh, democracy and non-racialism were things that he had fought all his life. And in the first draft, he had said uh, that he was prepared to die for it. In discussions, we persuaded him uh, to add three words so that uh, it may not be as challenging as the first draft. The words were, if needs be, I am prepared uh, to die for it. It's the one amendment that uh, he uh, did accept. But when he uttered those words, there was a, a gasp and then absolute silence 
You know, it became dark in court. You know, we didn't even know that the, 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 the clouds are gathering. It became dark and the rain just fell. And it was all quiet. After that, some of us said, mm, those are the last words he is giving us. I have fought against white domination. And I have fought against black domination. I have cherished the idea of a democratic and free society in which all persons live together in harmony and with equal opportunity. It is an idea which I hope to live for and to achieve. But if needs be, it is an idea for which I am prepared to die. Nelson Mandela um, saying he is prepared to die for to achieve the goals of ending apartheid in South Africa. We are going to be spending most of the hour digging deep into the Nelson Mandela, his life, and the movement that he led. Our guest is Dr. Gerald Horn, a num- published a number of books uh, most recently, White Supremacy Confronted U.S. Imperialism and Anti-Communism Versus the Liberation of Southern Africa from Rhodes to Mandela. And for our weekly Earth Watch, we discuss the upcoming North American Climate and Forest Convergence and the Underground Fire at Bridgeton Landfill in St. Louis, Missouri, and Nuclear Weapons Waste. We speak with Alex Cohen, co-founder of Earth Defense Coalition. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted, women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Christina Onestead. President Donald Trump continued heated rhetoric against four Democratic freshmen women of color during a rally in North Carolina last night, calling them anti-American. All are American citizens. Then he took aim at immigrant American Minnesota Representative Ilhan Omar, falsely claiming she praised al-Qaeda. As a crowd chanted, send her back. You say al-Qaeda makes you proud. Al-Qaeda makes you proud. You don't speak that way about America. And she looks down with contempt on the hard-working Americans, saying that ignorance is pervasive in many parts of this country. And obviously and importantly, Omar has a history of launching vicious anti-Semitic screeds. Trump also called out Omar for saying politicians backed Israel for Benjamins, or the money, which she did say, but later apologized. Trump, on the other hand, has not apologized for any of the comments he said about the four congresswomen of color known as the squad. His comments on Twitter this week about them led the House to condemn the statements as racist. 
Thousands of Puerto Ricans flooded the streets last night calling for the governor, Ricardo Rosseo, to resign after the leak of hundreds of pages of online chats showing him making homophobic, sexist, and other violent statements, also mocking his constituents. Police fired tear gas into crowds that surrounded his mansion. The U.S. island territory has been mired in a series of crises, is struggling with debt and dealing with the aftermath of the 2017 hurricane that killed thousands. Since the storm, hundreds of schools have been closed to save money and a wide range of social services and pensions are being cut back or under threat. Singer Ricky Martin, who Rosseo mocked for being gay in leaked chats, rallied in Puerto Rico yesterday calling for his resignation. Martin responded in a video posted on social media. Tired of the cynicism. They put down women. They put down the LGBT community. People with disabilities. Corruption. It is insane. We are tired. We can't take it anymore. I do live in America, but I have to come to Puerto Rico to let the world know that we will make a change. When Puerto Ricans get together and we do it in orderly, we can make amazing things happen. And that's why we're here today. He's going to listen to us. We just can't take it anymore. Puerto Rico has suffered enough, and it's, it's pretty much barbaric what he's doing. We're tired and we're angry. Puerto Rico Center for Investigative Journalism obtained and released some 900 pages of private chats between Rosseo and his aides. The messages also include jokes about Hurricane Maria victims, where more than 4,600 Puerto Ricans died. Rosseo has apologized and promised transparency. Some of his staff, including the Secretary of State, have resigned. The House of Representatives will vote today on legislation to raise the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour by 2026, more than double the current rate of $7.25 an hour. The legislation titled Raise the Wage Act is unlikely to be picked up by the Republican-controlled Senate. The vote had originally been expected for Wednesday, but was pushed back a day, according to House Majority Leader's office. Democrats have pointed out that it's been more than a decade since the minimum wage was increased. However, a study by the Joint Economic Committee released this week notes an increase to just $10.15 an hour would bring the minimum wage in line with inflation. Last week, the Chamber of Commerce, the nation's largest business trade association, proposed a raise to that level, but the offer has found few takers within the majority Democratic Party. The U.N. Special Rapporteur for Myanmar says U.S. sanctions aren't enough against four top generals over the mass killings of minority Rohingya Muslims. Myanmar's commander-in-chief and his deputy, two other generals and their immediate families have been banned from traveling to the U.S. On Tuesday, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said the four were responsible for gross human rights violations involving extrajudicial killings in an ethnic cleansing campaign against the Rohingya. Here's U.N. Envoy Yang Hee Lee. It's better late than never. I just want to know why it took U.S. so long after other countries have, and, and I and others have raised this issue. The FFM has listed uh, six uh, generals that should be, on, uh, uh, th that should be sanctioned immediately. Uh, so it doesn't go far enough. It should go further. Myanmar's military has been accused of widespread rights violations leading 
to about 700,000 Rohingya to flee the country since August of 2017. Critics have urged its actions be judged by the International Criminal Court, which is attempting to investigate. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. And uh, before we go to our weekly Earth Watch, I'd just like to give you an update on a story uh, we started covering yesterday, which are the protests going on now in Hawaii's big island, led by indigenous people protesting the construction of the 30-meter telescope on land that indigenous Hawaiians consider sacred. Um, Now, the uh, Mauna Kea um, is on crown lands, uh, which, according to a report in The Guardian, belonged to the Hawaiian kingdom before it was overthrown in 1893. And, of course, native um, Hawaiian people uh, make the case that these are stolen lands, lands stolen by the United States and still belongs to them. Uh, quote, these lands were taken from us, so we have rights to them. All righty, says one of the leaders of the protesters there. And uh, yesterday we spoke to a protester who was on the ground. Uh, We're concerned uh, about her. Hopefully she was not arrested because yesterday um, more than a thousand people, at least a thousand people, the press, they're reporting a thousand people uh, were there and at the protest site. 33 were arrested, um, including the elders who had chained themselves to block uh, entrance uh, so that the construction of this new telescope could not would not continue. Meanwhile, the, there are already telescopes on that site, so all of the personnel uh, from the uh, telescope Uh, on that site, they have removed all of their personnel. And the governor of Hawaii issued a proclamation uh, yesterday on Wednesday um, that gives law enforcement increased flexibility and authority to close more areas and restrict access to Maokea. So this, of course, is concern since people were hoping that he would get the message uh, being sent by indigenous people as well as uh, their supporters. Let's go to a clip now uh, from one of the women who was arrested, uh, Kupana, and you'll hear her and you'll also hear some from her granddaughters. It was quite a process, you know, this whole thing. I mean, um, we're kupuna fighting for our families, you know, the right to to um, praise our ancestors on the Mauna and trying to teach them uh, pono, you know, the right things to do for our aina. I don't know. It's the only way we can do it, stand up for our rights. You know, they don't hate us. We don't hate them. You know, we're all citizens of Hawaii, and we all love the aina, and I know that they do. We all come from here, you know. So, girls, you've seen this. What's happening? Are you learning? What are you learning from all this? I'm learning to that if I believe in something, don't ever back down, no matter what the consequences are. Even if that means to be arrested or to lay down on the ground, do whatever you need to do in order to keep our land safe. Um, I'm learning the importance of having a strong lahui 
um, as you can see there's so many of us up here on the mountain and so much people willing to go through this and stand their ground so we're learning to do what's right do what's pono has this ever happened before in your lifetime mm, four years ago but same we're fighting the same problem we yeah. told the stories about that mm -hmm. back then what did you learn from that those stories i mean well, I learned that if you keep fighting, it's going to keep going. So we're still here. We're still fighting. Aye. We're not going to give up. And what's next? Yeah, we're not giving up. Yeah, we're here to the end. And the end, will we will be victorious. I'm hoping that the governor will see that we are dedicated to keeping the aina and for the citizens and not for corporate greed. All righty, there you go. And really inspired to hear those two uh, teenagers, those two uh, young women, girls, really um, being inspired by the action and inspired by their grandmother, one of 33 people who were arrested uh, to block the building of a billion-dollar telescope on uh, the most sacred uh, site for indigenous Hawaiians. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth, and we're now going to uh, go to our weekly Earth Watch. There is a major event coming up, the resurgence, it's called, the 2019 North American Forest and Climate uh, Movement uh, Convergence, and there continues to be fallout uh, from a fire, an underground fire that happened in St. Louis, M Missouri, the Bridgeton Landfill um, underground fire, and uh, a lot of health concerns, environmental concerns, but here to discuss all all of this, I would like to welcome Alex Cohen, who is co-founder of the Earth Defense Coalition. Welcome, Alex. Hello. Thank you. Okay. So, Alex, before we get to the convergence, really important event uh, coming up, tell us what happened. A lot of our listeners likely ha had not heard anything about Bri the Bridgetown uh, landfill underground fire. What happened, and what are the concerns? that local people have yeah so a brief history st louis was one of the uh, first cities to process uranium from the belgian congo for the manhattan project so we processed all the uranium for the atomic bomb in the 40s largely in secrecy and to kind of speed it up through mishandling of the radioactive waste that was left over from the processing of uranium a bunch of it got dumped throughout north county st louis um, some of it ending up in a creek that runs through North County called Coldwater Creek, and another portion of that waste ending up in the Westlake landfill where it was illegally dumped there in 1973. Fast forward to about 2013, an underground landfill fire started burning at the um, in that complex. About seven years later, the underground landfill fire is still burning. It's about 600 feet away from this Manhattan radioactive weapons waste, and there's still no physical barrier that separates the waste from the, um, the radioactive waste from the fire. And that's kind of like the fast-forward version of where we are now and still dealing with the legacy of nuclear weapons and what it means long-term as well as short-term for people around the world. Yeah, and I mean, just, I think, day before yesterday, there was a, an earthquake, not a big one, but a, eight, a 4.8, I think, 
in the Bay Area, and it wasn't far from Livermore uh, Laboratories, <laughs> you know, so yeah. that that is really cause of concern for people also who are living in earthquake-prone uh, areas. I mean, it just takes one close to one of these sites that could be ta- catastrophic for the population. Is that not the case? That is definitely the case, and especially here in St. Louis, this radioactive waste and this landfill complex sits um, less than two miles from the Missouri River, Mm. and it's right in the Missouri River floodplain. So we're finally, we got the Environmental Protection Agency to admit that this site has contaminated the aquifers underneath the landfill, um, and that there is obviously, which we've known for a long time, the possibility that it is entering the Missouri River and, you know, can continue to do that and affect everyone downstream. Yeah, and, and feeding into the Mississippi. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so that's, that's, that's huge there. Okay, so now um, major event uh, coming up. I'd like you to tell us about what it's all about, the resurgence, the 2019 North American Forest and Climate Movement uh, Convergence. When is it taking place? Where is it taking place? And what's going to be happening there? Yeah, so um, I'm pretty excited. St. Louis is one of the um, closest um, big cities to it, but it's taking place October 11th through the 14th, culminating on Indigenous Peoples Day. And it's going to be in the Shawnee National Forest, which is significant because it has a history of resistance with direct action to fighting clear-cutting and logging in the forest. And they're currently trying to reopen clear-cutting in the Shawnee Forest. So it's going to be taking place there. Um, Indigenous Environmental Network and Global Justice Ecology Project and Shawnee Forest Defense are putting it on and a great team of people. And ultimately what we hope to achieve is bringing together movements that historically have defended forests, um, indigenous peoples, groups that um, are really focused on climate justice work as well as social, social justice movements and getting everyone together to try and create concrete um, action plans to move forward. So it's not just a conference, it's actually us working together and leaving with next steps to try and fight the systems that are destroying um, all life on Earth. Right, and is this um, event, the resurgence, is it open for people? Like if if some of our listeners want to participate, I mean, what, what should people do? Um, if they want to attend and if they can't attend to support the effort? Definitely, yeah, it's open. And right now we're asking people to go to the website, which is forestclimateconvergence.org and fill out the registration or the call to participation. And in the call to participation, there will be seven different kind of like working groups to see where you want to plug in. So challenging false solutions or working on direct action strategy, um, and different things like that. Right. And and for people, give give that website again, by the way. It's uh, forestclimateconvergence.org. And right. that's where you go under um, registration is the tab. And that's where you'll see um, call to participation. Right. And for people who maybe want to go from other parts of the country, um, what is it? Housing, I mean, are people staying in the forest itself or... Um, what? Yeah, people. What's accommodation the, like? Yeah, people will be staying in the forest, and then also there will be other um, accommodations to try and meet everyone's needs. 
and um, to like help figure that out and get people um, to be able to plug in, we're doing that through the uh, registration process. Right. So th- this is an opportunity for people who um, have been putting off going camping. I imagine if they're staying in the forest, can people bring tents and stay there or or what? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. All righty, so that is the Resurgence 2019 North American Forest and Climate Movement Convergence, and it's taking place in the Shawnee National Forest in southern Illinois, and uh, that is coming up October 11th through October 14th, ending on Indigenous Peoples Day, what used to be called uh, Columbus Day. So we, yes. so we're going to look forward to hearing more about this as we get closer. I'm glad to hear about the organizations involved with it because we do partner with the uh, uh, Global Justice Ecology uh, Project for our weekly Earth Minute and Earth Watch. So we want to thank them and we want to thank you for joining us. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Right. This is Margaret Prescott, uh, host of Sojourner Truth. And uh, as you heard at the top of the hour, today we're marking Nelson Mandela Day. He would have been 101 years old uh, today. And the United Nations has officially recognized July 18th as Nelson Mandela Day. And indeed, the widow of Nelson uh, Mandela, she is asking people in South Africa, uh, but I imagine people who want to remember Nelson Mandela around the world, to do a good deed in the community today, uh, rather than just organize yet another you know, birthday celebration, another e- event of, of sorts that they should just go and uh, do some uh, community work. So let's <laughs> uh, take note of that. And of course, we, the world lost Nelson Mandela on December 5th, uh, 2013. And uh, as I said earlier, he did become the first black president of South Africa after being freed from prison where he spent 27 years. Now, to give you some idea of his background, he was actually born into a royal family, the Tembu royal family. In uh, 1918, July 18th, 1918, South Africa was then occupied by the British. His great-grandfather on his father's side was a king of the Tembu nation in South Africa's modern Eastern Cape province. Now, although his ancestors represented and came from uh, royalty, he grew up under different conditions, uh, far from uh, being royal. Um, His grandfather was the king's child by a wife of a clan that was seen as an inferior clan, so his family was barred from inheriting the throne and its wealth. So Mandela pretty much grew up under more normal uh, circumstances at the time under a brutal and racist uh, regime. He went on to study law, eventually working as an attorney in Johannesburg, and while there he became increasingly political, got involved with anti-imperialist, anti-colonial, and African nationalist politics. By 19... 43, he had joined the African National Congress and helped to establish its Youth League a year later. Uh, once the far-right National Party's all-white regime formally imposed apartheid 
in South Africa in 1948, Nelson Mandela and the ANC, the African National Congress, vowed to fight the system. Uh, during the, his time with the ANC, Nelson Mandela was arrested several times for what the apartheid government called seditious activities. Uh, he later secretly joined the South African Communist Party, which had been banned in the country. He was instrumental in the creation of the ANC's armed wing um, called Spear of the Nation, which waged guerrilla warfare against the apartheid government. In 1962, he was arrested and imprisoned, being sentenced to life in prison for a conspiracy against the apartheid regime. Prior to being arrested, he was forced to temporarily leave the country in secret, traveling to Ethiopia, Egypt, Senegal, uh, Morocco, Mali, uh, Guinea, Sierra Leone, Liberia, and even London, England, where he met with people who supported the revolutionary anti-apartheid cause. Uh, what I'd like to do now is to go to a clip from Mandela, uh, son of Africa. And this is early. This is a clip before uh, Mandela goes to prison, and it gives us uh, some sense of the early revolutionary Nelson Mandela. It was felt that somebody should go underground and lead the movement. I accepted the challenge with all its difficulties. The whole country, police, army, everyone had a photograph of Nelson Mandela who had to be arrested immediately he was seen. We couldn't really disguise his face. I mean, he'd wear a, a, a cap or something from time to time, but it was never satisfactory. We had to take great precautions. We had to blindfold journalists. We had to change cars sometimes two or three cars. Do you see Africans being able to develop in this country without the European being pushed out? South Africa is a country, a country of many races. There is room for all the various races in this country. The Africans want one man, one vote. They want political independence. Now, if Dr. Vervoort's government doesn't give you the kind of concessions that you want sometime soon, is there any likelihood of violence? It is useless and futile for us to continue talking peace and non-violence against a government whose reply is only savage attacks on an unarmed and defenseless people. In that situation, we have no alternative but uh, to resort uh, to armed struggle. But we made it clear, even as we took that decision, that uh, the responsibility rested uh, squarely in the sh on the shoulders of the government and uh, that uh, we could refrain from this action even at this 11th hour if the government agreed to meet and to sit down with us. But the government believed in strong arm methods and uh, all that they did was to say gloves off. There is now going to be a real conflict. We are going to suppress you. And that's what they tried to do. Mandela left the country on a mission to raise funds and get military training for the armed struggle. On his return to South Africa, he was caught and arrested. I must just tell you about his dramatic appearance in court. My word. I was sitting in the court because I was reporting it. Special branch, armed policemen, outside the court, inside the court, thousands of people. 
Then Winnie came with a suitcase and she said to the policeman, before court had started, take this down as a change of clothing for Mr. Mandela. This man walked up and as I say, he was a mighty man, eh? you know. He had beads around his neck. He had a sort of cross over here. He had things around his national dress. Everyone was just shocked at seeing this man in this dramatic attire. And he looked straight at that magistrate. The magistrate was transfixed by this just staring of Mandela, like a mongoose with a snake. Mandela was sentenced to five years for leaving the country illegally and inciting strikes. While he was in prison, his comrades in the armed struggle were arrested. They were found with guns, bombs and documents that incriminated Mandela. Less than a year into his sentence, he was back in court, this time facing the death penalty for high treason. All righty, um, there you go. And then, of course, Nelson Mandela uh, went on to spend 27 years in prison, moving between the facilities on Robben Island, Polesmore Prison, and Victor Verster Prison as a result of a massive uh, movement in South Africa and around the world, including a boycott, economic boycott of uh, South Africa and their defeat. They got involved in the anti-colonial uh, wars in neighboring countries. South Africa, of course, on the side of the colonial powers um, where they were not victorious. Uh, as a result of all of that, President uh, F.W. de Klerk was forced to release Nelson Mandela in 1990. And even before his release from prison, Nelson Mandela spearheaded negotiations for his release and to finally end the entire system of apartheid in South Africa. In 1994, the first multiracial general election was held and Nelson Mandela became president representing the ANC. Nelson Mandela was the country's first black head of state after decades of apartheid in South Africa and was also the first elected in a fully representative uh, democratic election. Uh, Dr. Gerald Horn is waiting in the wings to speak with us. We're going to take our station break now, and we'll be spending the rest of the hour with Dr. Horn. Don't 
And it is Nelson Mandela Day, and that is a song about Nelson Mandela uh, sung by the Osile Tila Ochulo uh, Choir there. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner True. Check out our website at www.sotrueradio.org. We have a community calendar there and much more. Also, if you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us on Facebook and our handle on Instagram and Twitter at Radio. We're also worldwide on SoundCloud. And in the United States, we would like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in St. Louis, Missouri, um, in the U.S. And internationally, we would like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in the first Black Republic, Haiti, the country, the island nation of Haiti. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth, and we are honoring Nelson Mandela. uh, And this is would have been his birthday. He would have been 101 years old today. I'd like to welcome back to Sojourner Truth, Dr. Gerald Horn, the Morris Professor of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. He's written more than 30 books. His most recently published books include White Supremacy Confronted, U.S. Imperialism and Anti-Communism Versus the Liberation of Southern Africa from Rhodes to Mandela and Jazz and Justice, Racism and the Political Economy of the Music. Music and Dr. Gerald Horn will be in Southern California, in Los Angeles, this coming Saturday at 2 p.m. at McCarty um, Christian Memorial Church. And uh, there is no ticket, pay ticket to get in. You can uh, come. We appreciate any donation you can give so we could raise some funds here. Come on down. Uh, bring the whole family. Bring the young folks. A rare occasion to be able to hear Dr. Gerald Horn. And also SO1 Books. Um, they are co sponsors of the event. They will be there with Gerald's latest books, and Gerald would be very happy. Dr. Horn will be very happy to sign them for you. So, Dr. Horn, we're excited. We're going to be uh, seeing you in Southern California in a few days. Welcome, Dr. Horn. Well, thank you for inviting me. Okay. So, um, Dr. Horn, one of the books, we don't want to give everything away because we want people to turn up on Saturday uh, to hear what you have to say, uh, focuses on um, white supremacy confronted U.S. imperialism and anti-communism versus the liberation of Southern Africa from Rhodes to Mandela. And I see Mandela's name is in there, of course, and today is uh, Mandela Day. So um, just give us a little bird's eye view as to why um, looking at Mandela was important as you were working on this particular uh, book, Dr. Horton. Well, looking at Mandela was important because obviously he was a leader of the African National Congress of South Africa, which spearheaded the struggle against apartheid. As you noted in your preparatory remarks, he had also been for some time a member of the South African Communist Party, which was a comrade in arms of the ANC, and of course he helped to found and lead the spear of the nation, the armed wing of the ANC. But Dr. Horwato, you know, you never hear anything about Nelson Mandela being a member of the Communist Party. They kind of keep that thing on the down low. Well, of course. I mean, it, it disrupts the narrative. As you know, there has been an unfortunate narrative constructed that I make reference to in my book 
that tends to draw a strict parallel between the struggle against racism in the United States and the struggle against racism in South Africa, or in Southern Africa more generally. And then there's the companion effort to portray Mandela as an apostle of nonviolence, along the lines of Martin Luther King being an apostle of nonviolence. But that analogy breaks down easily and readily, and it's not appropriate to discussing these two similar, although distinct, patterns of racism in North America and in Southern Africa. Yeah, and and the fact that he actually um, was with the Youth Youth Congress, he was instrumental in creating the ANC's armed wing. You mentioned Spear of the Nation. Well, that's correct. And it's also important if you start drawing these parallels between North America and Southern Africa to take that to its logical conclusion. Uh, For example, one of the headlines from my book is that the movements against racism in North America and Southern Africa, they took divergent paths after World War II concluded, that is to say after 1945. Uh, Led by the NAACP, which had been founded in 1909 by W.E.B. Du Bois, the NAACP leadership found it necessary to embark on the path of anti-communism. It purged W.E.B. Du Bois from its ranks. It marginalized and isolated great figures like Paul Robeson, the actor, singer, activist. And I also point out that under the leadership of Walter White of the NAACP and Ralph Bunch, a former uh, UCLA graduate and former professor at Howard University, and of course, there's a hall at UCLA named after Ralph Bunch uh, to this very day. There was an effort to flip the leadership of the ANC into the uh, anti-communist column, uh, which failed miserably. And what that detects is that after 1945, these two movements in North America and in Southern Africa took divergent paths. The movements in Southern Africa aligned with the international movement for socialism, They were armed by the Soviet Union. Oftentimes, they were armed by China, although, of course, China had a mixed role in that part of Africa. Whereas in the United States of America, there was much more of a turn towards anti-communism. Now, in the short term, it seemed that the uh, path that was taken in the United States paid off. After all, you had the Supreme Court in 1954 say that Jim Crow, U.S. apartheid, was unconstitutional and illegal. Uh, But uh, with every passing day, even coming to just last night with the U.S. president leading a chant to send her back, uh, speaking of the black congresswoman from uh, Minnesota, and I would say inferentially to send us back, uh, speaking of the black community as a whole, uh, it's unclear as to whether or not the path we took was actually the correct path, particularly in comparison to the path taken by the ANC under Nelson Mandela. Yeah, and, you know, people tend to forget. I mean, you have not only Nelson Mandela, but uh, the great Paul Robeson, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, um, among others, who were at least part of the uh, socialists, what was considered the socialist camp. Of course, it was a, a, a lot of uh, controversy about Stalinism, you know, et cetera, and 
uh, surely there were a lot of issues there to say the very least but people forget about those uh, connections and also I was reading recently a lot of people also didn't know I actually didn't realize that Langston Hughes uh, also was a member of the party and you know much of not much of but it, it also was involved in this row the famous row that he had um, also with the great uh, Zora Neale Hurston so a lot of this stuff is is really uh, kept on the on the down low, uh, Dr. Horn. Well, it's very curious, is it not, that in the United States of America, even in the U.S. ruling elite, it's acceptable to be pro-Moscow between 1941 and 1945 when Washington and Moscow were allied against their common foe in Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan. But you're supposed to be anti-Moscow before 1941 and after 1945. And of course, black people are not allowed to align with Moscow at any time to fight our foe, particularly our foe in Washington, D.C. I mean, it's this kind of rank hypocrisy that leads to confusion and leads to misunderstanding, I'm afraid to say, of the struggle. As I point out in the book, F.W. de Klerk, the last apartheid leader, consciously and intentionally decided to free Nelson Mandela in February 1990, unban the African National Congress and other anti-apartheid movements and organizations, including the South African Communist Party, he did this unconsciously, consciously and intentionally weeks after the crumbling of the Berlin Wall in November 1989 because he recognized that the ANC would be weakened going into negotiations when its bulwark of support, that is to say the then socialist camp, was weakened. And that proved to be the case. The ANC had to make numerous compromises as a result of their support crumbling. Recall that the turning point in the struggle against colonialism and racism in Southern Africa was the intervention of Cuban troops in 1975 in Southern Angola, repelling an invasion from the apartheid military. That sound whipping administered against the apartheid army helped to induce a kind of reasonableness in terms of the leaders of apartheid because they recognized that they did not negotiate reasonably there was a possibility that the Cubans would not stop at liberating Angola, but would march eastward into what was then Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, and forcibly eject the races from power, and then march on to Pretoria and forcibly eject the races then there too. Well, let, let's unpack that a little bit, uh, Dr. Horn. There's, there's a lot there. Uh, one, in terms of the timing of when um, Mandela was released uh, from prison, I, I know you're, you're not saying that uh, de Klerk freed him out of the kindness of his own heart. I mean, it took a whole national and global movement, uh, not to mention the defeat that um, uh, South Africa was suffering, trying to support uh, the colonial powers in Namibia and Angola. Uh, that really led to his release. But you're saying the timing of it um, exactly had to do with the collapse of the Berlin Wall. It, it would, would you say that's true? Oh, yes, the de decomposition of the socialist camp, which then had knock-on effects in Cuba, because Cuba, as you know, endured a so-called special period with the collapse of the Soviet Union. And I should also say that there was, as you noted, a massive uh, anti-apartheid movement, including the United States of America, most uh, definitely on college campuses, where students engaged in protests against their administrations because university endowments had investments in corporations that were taking advantage 
of neo-slave labor in Southern Africa, leading to runaway shops, that is to say jobs being exported from the United States to Southern Africa. You also had unions like the West Coast Longshore Union headquartered in San Francisco, which refused to unload apartheid merchandise at the docks, particularly in Long Beach, Los Angeles. This helped to exacerbate a pre-existing crisis in apartheid, and all of these factors led to this momentous decision in February 1990 for the apartheid regime to decide to negotiate. But as noted, they were deciding to negotiate at a moment that they thought was favorable to themselves. Right. And on on that note, Dr. Horn, let us hear a bit more from Nelson Mandela. And indeed, you just mentioned uh, the longshoremen, et cetera. But this is a clip um, from uh, Mandela uh, saluting those in the United States who supported him, but also uh, civil rights heroes in the United States. Let's hear a bit of that right now. We need your support for this final stage. Now, more than ever, we call on you to redouble your efforts. We have spoken elsewhere of the inspired actions of great Americans, such as Martin Luther King, Jr., Malcolm X Fanny Low Hammer John Brown and many others together we must rekindle the spirit of strength and beauty and dispatch racism once and for all from human society. We are committed to the establishment of a united, non-racial, non-sexist, Democratic South Africa. We demand one person, one vote on a common non-racial voters' vote. Our people demand democracy. Our country, which continues to bleed and suffer pain, needs democracy. Our country stands on the threshold of fundamental change, but we still have a long road to travel before reaching our destination, freedom. As long as apartheid as long as apartheid is in place, we appeal to you to maintain sanctions. That is 
a certain way to reach our objective. We must keep the pressure on apartheid until victory is achieved. Until victory is achieved. And there you heard Dr. Dr. Gerald Horn, who is our guest. And this is Nelson Mandela speaking clearly after he's been released from prison in Oakland, uh, California, and making the connection with Malcolm X and Fannie Lou Hamer, but also John Brown. And we have to remember uh, that the ANC, including uh, the armed wing of the ANC, was a multiracial uh, movement, um, clearly black-led, but it was uh, multiracial. Uh, so, uh, Dr. Horn, I mean, to hear the uh, uh, the beginning of the right at the top of the hour, you likely missed that. I p- played a clip of Nelson Mandela saying he would be prepared to die, basically, for the cause. And here you hear him making the connections with John Brown and Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, etc., uh, so there's that Mandela, but then you began to talk about the negotiations, uh, getting him out of prison and the the deals that he had to make. And, and I suppose facing the reality from being the leader of a, of a movement, an anti-apartheid movement, uh, and then going into governance and all of the issues and compromises involved there, Dr. Horn. Well, first of all, what you need to realize is that human beings make history, but they must make it with the cloth at hand. What that means is that if Martin Luther King had arisen in Atlanta, Jim Crow Atlanta in 1906, a year of bloody pogroms against black Americans, even his nonviolent line would have been subject perhaps to criminal penalty, if not liquidation. But arising in Alabama in the mid-1950s when you had the simultaneous rise of national liberation movements that the United States had to appeal to and therefore had to try to lessen, from their point of view, the most stinging aspects of Jim Crow. This allowed Martin Luther King to flourish. So likewise, when Nelson Mandela goes into negotiations, when his allies are in a state of retreat and decomposition, uh, this led him and led the ANC, because after all, he was just the leader of an organization, not the entire organization, this led them to make uh, what some might consider to be uh, unwieldy compromises. I should also say, and I stress this in the book, that the cupboard was bare when the Mandela regime took power in the spring of 1994. That is to say, recall that when in Guinea-Conakry in West Africa, when Seiko Toure came to power in the late 1950s, early 1960s, the French colonialists stripped the country bare, taking light bulbs, destroying toilets, etc., trying to make it difficult with a new regime to function. Something similar happened in Southern Africa. At a time, once again, when there was hardly a counterweight to U.S. imperialism and North Atlantic imperialism more specifically. This has led to a slowdown, to put it mildly, in terms of the top issue in Southern Africa, which is the redistribution of wealth, the redistribution of land. However, you know that in the recent election that just took place a few months ago in South Africa, the ANC was returned to power, albeit with a reduced majority, because of discontent. But simultaneously, you had a neo-apartheid party that surged in popularity, a neo-apartheid party that, by the way, has received shout-outs from the 45th president of the United States, who has echoed their false and meretricious line about so-called white genocide taking place in South Africa. And, of course, the conservatives in Australia have said that they will welcome those defined as white who would like to flee South Africa. That is to say, that kind of support also is in motion 
And so we have a very difficult situation even to this very day in Southern Africa. Yeah, and Dr. Horn, just make the connection with that and what is happening today in the United States. I mean, you made um, a, a mention of uh, send her back, uh, of Trump basically saying, you know, we all really need to leave the country. And for those of us of African descent who are black and brown, I mean, we could think of instance after instance after instance when somebody had told us to go back where we came from. I know it certainly has happened to me. But given the fact that the South Africa official system of apartheid was really based on what? On Jim Crow in the United States. And it just seems to me, you mentioned that neo-apartheid party um, on the rise in South Africa. A lot of people didn't think that the rise of Donald Trump would happen here in the United States, but it did. So just uh, putting those... uh, you know, just just put that uh, together uh, briefly for us. But people are just going to have to hear more of your analysis uh, when you come uh, this uh, coming weekend, Saturday, uh, to Los Angeles. And by the way, we are going to record that. So for your fans around the country, have no fear because we will make it available uh, to you for those of you who can't get to Los Angeles for that event. So just some final thoughts, Dr. Horn. Well, final thoughts are that I think that on this side of the Atlantic, we've lost sight of the fact that I articulated a moment ago that when Jim Crow began to retreat in the United States in the 1950s, it was not only because of fearless leadership and fearless protests, it was also because of a changing international situation. And now, from Washington's point of view, from the point of view of the 45th president, as they see it with this trade war and Chinese economic growth slowing down, this is a moment to crack down upon those that are seen as unpatriotic, if you like, speaking of the black American population in particular. And likewise, abroad, it's seen that this is the moment where Mr. Trump can extend the hand of friendship openly to neo-apartheid, neo-fascist elements in Southern Africa who are trying to block the redistribution of the wealth, trying to block the redistribution of the land. And so I'm afraid to say that we're about to learn a difficult historical lesson, that is to say that we not only need to struggle fearlessly and courageously at home, but we also have to develop and promote an international movement along that same line. Right, and that means that we have work to do, can't afford to sit on our hands. Well, Dr. Horn, we're going to have to leave it there, but we look forward uh, to hearing so much more uh, from you this coming Saturday, 2 p.m. at McCarty Christian Memorial Church. Uh, You will be able to get uh, Dr. Horn's uh, brand new books. He will sign them uh, for you. And uh, it's just a donation, a donation at the door. We want to thank SON Books um, for their co-sponsorship and for being there and making Dr. Horn's books available. There's been so much going on this week. We haven't even been able to discuss on Sojourner Truth the whole latest fear with, with, with uh, Trump and, you know, basically get out. <laughs> we want a white America. So a lot to discuss. Thank you, Dr. Horn. 
Thank you for inviting me. All right. Today's show produced by me. That's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank the Sojourner Truth team, Mr. T, Teddy Robinson, our engineer, and Romero Funes, our assistant producer. If you'd like a copy of today's show, please contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230 or go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. We're going to go out with Eddie Grant's Give Me Hope, Joanna. It keeps a brother in a subjection. But maybe pressure will make Joanna see how everybody could live as one. Oh, give me hope, Joanna. Hope, Joanna, give me hope. This is Perrin Willis. This is KBOO Portland at 9 o'clock. Next up is Veterans Voice Radio. Deals with matters of war and peace, plus veterans health issues after the effects of war. KBOO Community Radio and the Jazz Society of Oregon are thrilled to present the 39th annual Cathedral Park Jazz Festival, July 19, 20, and 21 at Cathedral Park in North Portland. The area's finest jazz, blues, R&B, and Latin musicians will rock the park for three days. PDX Soul, Karen Lovely, King Louie Organ Trio, Devin Phillips, Mel Brown, John Gilmore, are just a few of the 15 bands performing this year. That's the 39th annual Cathedral Park Jazz Festival, Portland's longest-running community event, July 19, 20, and 21, under the St. John's Bridge in North Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage, under Community Events. KBOO Community Radio is a proud co-sponsor of Radiance of Resistance, a night with Jana Jihad on Monday, July 29th at 7 p.m. at the First Unitarian Church in Portland. Jana Jihad Tamimi, 13-year-old Palestinian activist, began recording, reporting on, and sharing her lived reality from the age of seven, shortly after her, two of her relatives were killed by Israeli forces. Jana now enjoys a global following, serves as ambassador of the South African Palestinian Children's Initiative, and has been awarded internationally for her media role. Again, that's Radiance of Resistance, a night with Jana Jihad on Monday, July 29th at 7 p.m. at the First Unitarian Church, 1226 Southwest Salmon Street in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm at the right side of the homepage under Community Events. This is KBOO Portland, listener-powered, non-corporate community radio.